You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. As promised, coming to you faster and more efficiently than before. That's right. I'm here with Marco. Hi, Chris. Doing our every other week thing until uh, Richard gets back and then it'll be, I won't have to work quite as hard. That's right. We'll just make Richard work harder. In fact, we're just going to make Richard do everything. That You and I will just kick back, have a few beers, and he can do all the work. That sounds like a terrible idea, actually, because yeah. it just I just won't get anything. <laughs> It'll be like, Richard, where's this? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. Oh, no, just tell him to talk about anything, you know? Just let him speak extemporaneously. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. He'll I mean, fill up hours he'll of like, Here's this obscure 60s <laughs> show on British television that's better than anything else you Americans have ever come up with. <laughs> it's just the two hours of, of Richard berating us at our <laughs> lack of culture. Uh, anyway, so we have a... a you know, a medium-sized list of stuff today, oh, but uh, I want to tell you guys first, please click on those Amazon links and buy stuff through them, whether they be the movies that are the links themselves. As you can see on the page, you've got time codes mm-hmm. for all the things we talk about attached to a picture of the movies that we're reviewing. You click on that, go to that movie page from Amazon, you buy that movie, we get a kickback, or you buy anything starting from one of our links, we get a kickback, and that's very helpful. And we will not judge you, no matter what you purchase. No, we, well, we don't know. We don't. Know. They don't send us that information. Oh, that would be much more entertaining. You could buy if we knew a that diamond encrusted double dildo, and we would never know. Although your your you know whatever orifice ends up getting the ah. the, the diamond ends of that, will know. But what a way to go! <laughs> and uh, of course, please become a subscriber. No better way to help us out. Need that money? I don't even know how to emphasize to you enough. It's why putting up all these shows. It costs actually a lot of money to get them all up here, and everything else involved with keeping this site running, which is a day to day struggle so please become a subscriber there's four different levels you can do it and no matter which level you pick it helps absolutely and you know what even though it's not as huge a stack as we sometimes do you know i like this new format because you know what here at digital noise we're about quality not quantity damn it and we have some fine quality this week Chris. we do let's just launch into one of the ones that i think is by far the the finest uh quality of anything that we've oh got this shit week. right out of the gate in fact i'm just gonna uh say this is my pick of the week yeah, you know what god damn it yep it's my pick of the week too uh, so for all of those of you who are like in suspense as to what our pick of the week is you can tune out now uh, we already blew it but this is of course the uh, 2017 horror film uh, directorial debut from Jordan Peele called Get Out. And And boy, did this, like, do something the studios did not expect, which is a film that was deeply about African-American issues starring a a black man and written and directed by a black man. It was one of the most successful films of the year so far with $230 worldwide against its $4.5 million budget. To say the least, the studio is pleased. Universal, in fact, they went ahead and signed a multi-picture deal with Jordan Peele to not do, like, because there was a lot of talk of, like, oh, are you going to, we'd love for you to do these adaptations of stuff. And he's like, no, I don't want to do any of that. I want to just make movies that are my completely... own like uh ip like make up my own things and the next one he's making is going to be another horror thriller which i'm also isn't that the series he's doing called uh uh, lovecraft country he's involved in production okay he hasn't made any bigger commitments yet which is is fascinating i have no details about it but i mean if you if anybody who's ever read lovecraft enough eventually you go 
damn, Lovecraft's really racist. Uh, so I'm very curious to see how he manages to balance one would those two things. That he's, well, because you, when you read the Lovecraft stories, they're not really terribly racist. In fact, I can't even remember ever Except for when he's talking about brown people or black people or Asians or Jews and describes them as subhumans. Does you, that happen in his stories? Uh, I think the Beast of Red Hook in particular. It's not okay. it's endemic across the board. Right. Uh, it's not like in every story, but when he mentions it, boy, does he really delve into it. Yeah, he was uh, kind of a Nazi, no question, but he wrote some good stuff. Uh, but that has nothing to do with Get Out. Absolutely not. Here we have a Daniel Kalua, who I expect we're going to be seeing popping up in a lot more stuff. In fact, you may have seen him from Skins or the Black Mirror episode, 15 Million Merits. Yeah. Uh, that and, was that's where I've seen that dude, and he was in Kick Ass oh. too, and Rowan Atkinson on Johnny English Reborn. By the way, there's going to be a third Johnny English movie, like oh, anybody cares. Joy. Uh, anyway, he plays a guy who is dating a white girl, who is uh, uh, Allison Williams, who's previously really just I think been on Girls, one of the main characters <laughs> mm-hmm. on that show. And uh, they seem to be very happy together, and she convinces him, albeit reluctantly from his part, to come take a drive out into the country to go stay with his parents, with her parents. Who Who are a very well-to-do sort of... You know, upper class couple. They're yeah. sort of white liberals. It's, you know, they they do and say all the right things. There's there's an element of cringe comedy in this, and it takes a much darker turn. And that's Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener. Oh. Incidentally, Bradley Whitford said when he asked me to do it, I was ready to do it for no pay. I'm yeah. such a big fan of Jordan Peele. I would have done anything just to be part of it. And so I would assume we're probably going to see more Bradley Whitford. I, I, hopefully Peele so. Films. I mean, but, he got a great performance out of all of these people. But things get weirder when they invite over the whole clan of weird, somewhat rich white folks who are all treating them very strangely and, all, you know, very friendly, but very strange. And there's a yeah. lot of stuff that's about that sort of unintentional racism, that mm-hmm. hidden yes. racism here. Like what it's really like to perceive being in the midst of white people as a black person and the things they say and do that aren't meant to hurt, but they're hurtful. It's about microaggressions. And, you know, it really taps into, you know, most films are obviously horror movies are about fears. And we think of, you know, things like being murdered or being, you know. Whatever. We think of these terribly drastic things, but there is also a sort of typical day-to-day kind of horror scenario, which is, you know, just, is this person going to bother me? Are they going to offend me? Am I going to get into some kind of confrontation? How polite do I have to be in this scenario uh, while still – and hold my tongue until I'm allowed to say something? And And suffice it to say, this movie isn't just about that. That's just the launching point for something that becomes an out-and-out crazy horror film. That's what's so smart about it because it takes that very real – sort of unease and discomfort if uh and and, you know i can't speak for everybody but if you've ever been in in a room where you are the only person of color or the only person who's not kind of like everybody else and a lot of well-intentioned people uh say some things to you that you can't really tell if they're being insensitive on purpose or if it's just ignorance on their part. That basic fear is the sort of starting point for everything that comes out of this movie. So and you're saying this movie further. is as good as a plate of tacos, right? Uh, that's right, Chris. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> See? See what I just did? There you that's go. what we're talking about. You can't say that. Yeah. It, it is as good as a plate of tacos, yes. <laughs> you potato munchers. <laughs> no, uh, no, no. Anyway. Well, not anymore. Yeah, anymore. Not anymore. That's true. But I 
I want so much to talk about this movie, uh, and that's one of the great things about having a smaller slate of films because we can delve more. But this has only recently come out. Uh, this was released in February, which is another part of this film's success because it kind of got dumped in a period of time when you don't really expect the studios to put out their best stuff. And honestly, the studio didn't think this was among their best stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. It was it, it, one, you know, there's there's so many sort of things that kind of broke ground here. You know, uh, a debut horror film uh, with about a black cat, about a black actor uh, with a black director that specifically speaks to black issues that isn't really targeted at the sort of broad demographic with a hard R rating dumped in a period of time when most people don't really expect to go see horror movies and Across the board, it just defied every expectation. It became the don't miss movie of Absolutely. February, but you know? I know that some of you listening may have missed it. In which case, I don't so, want to spoil anything no. for them specifically. This is such a good movie. You guys need to go watch it's it. It's so incredibly well made. Um, uh, the also appearances here from Caleb Landry Jones and from Stephen Root, who in particular I always enjoy when oh, he yeah. appears in something. But uh, moving on to the the bonus features here, which I think they actually did on a whole a good job of. Yeah. The, one of the big things that people talk about here is the alternate ending which i don't once again can't really say what exactly it is without ruining the end of the movie period except it's a lot darker than what they came yeah. up with and jordan peele talk talks about it in the commentary so just suggesting well when we originally wrote this and in fact when we originally filmed it, it was during the obama era right and it made more sense to end it this way then but now in the era of trump it's like no i think we need a bit of relief yeah. <laughs> well because this also comes from that point of view where it's like well america has has elected a black president so that whole racism thing obviously we're past that we solve yeah, post racism that, America know, and and he's one of the uh, the only real special feature on this disc that really is of substance uh, there's a couple featurettes but the most substantive one uh, apart from the alternative ending and deleted scenes is the uh, feature length commentary uh, by Jordan Peele who not only you know lays out his inspirations for this movie, but his various influences. And it becomes very clear that while this may be his directorial debut, uh, this is a guy who really understands horror, who is a fan. Yeah. It's not just this, uh, you know, because there's certain films, you know, genre filmmakers have been using the genre to speak to any number of controversial issues over the year. And that makes them kind of worth talking about. But when you look at them as films just by themselves, they don't always uh, surpass their good intentions. Sure. This is a guy who had something he wanted to say. And he also constructed a damn good horror movie. Well, I, you know, it's funny because when the, he this came out, I was like, OK, well cool enough i'll be interested to see whatever he does next and then he's like right now i'm only focusing on horror stuff which was interesting because i never yeah. really thought of him as a horror guy but the more you listen to him talk he's like well first off horror and comedy aren't that different they're not and they really aren't i mean for one there's a reason why people say the two most subjective types of movies like in terms of opinion are horror and comedy because right. did it make you laugh or did it make you scared you have to have the setup and you have to have the payoff you know um, he also talks about the fact that you know and this is kind of true if you look at the numbers, uh, that there is a strong, uh, loyal horror audience within the black community, but that community is rarely served with characters who speak to their own experience. Yeah, Tales from the Hood just didn't cut it. I exactly. But, you know, I think the thing about horror, and maybe the reason he has picked it specifically, is that horror is something even at low budget can attract big audiences yep. that go – that. 
spite demographics where they're like, wow, men, women, like any color, they all are interested in going mm-hmm. to see horror. Not everybody is interested in going to see horror, but almost an equal amount from each demographic is interested. You always get butts in seats with horror. And to, I think with the types of things he's trying to educate people with that are subtle and can be hard to explain, mm-hmm. maybe the best way to do it is to, you know, like give them the spoonful of sugar with it. Give that, that the type yeah. of films, these genre films that people are going to have a really good time, but also walk away chewing on something. Yeah, this and there's a lot to chew on here. I mean, even if you're not a fan of horror, uh, it's worth seeking out. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't talk anymore because I just want to talk so much about this movie. But, but yeah, uh, pick of the week all the way. There's a Q&A discussion with Jordan Peele's Will, which is way too short. But interestingly, Chance the Rapper is the one who yeah, is uh, moderating a, a panel, which I thought was kind of kind of cool. Yeah, definitely worth checking out the special features on that one. Okay, let's move on to another horror film. We've actually got quite a few horror films this week. Um, and this is one of my... This is kind of my white whale of horror movies. I've been waiting for them to put out an American Blu-ray release or even DVD release of this forever. I, I remember being a big fan of this film when it came out in 1988. It's directed by Frank Henlotter, who is one of those guys that has a, the weirdest yeah, fan the base Basket ever. Case trilogy. Yeah, the Basket Case trilogy, Frankenhooker, which, by the way, if you've never seen, is awesome and you yeah. can totally see it. Um, he makes odd, gory horror comedies. And mm-hmm. I remember brain, I always remembered brain damage being my favorite of the lot of mm-hmm. his films. And sure enough, watching it again, I still think this is his best film. Surprised it, it got it is. sidelined so much or that he never even came back with a sequel. But uh, this is also a lot more disturbing than I remember it being. It, it, it is. And I think part of that is because this is a, uh, I don't, I don't think it's an extended or director's cut, but the subsequent home, the original home releases, they do reference that some of the gory or more disturbing scenes had been trimmed. So it's possible that you didn't even see those. Uh, this is definitely worth watching too. And it's funny that we have this coming right after Get Out, even though they couldn't be further apart in <laughs> terms of tone and quality. They're both. Any other week would have been – this would have been my pick of the week. On another but week. Get Out knocked it out. Yeah. Brain Damage is an odd kind of psychedelic horror film, but one that like isn't – it's not like Blue Sunshine. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah. It definitely intended as more of a psychedelic horror that was definitely more towards people. I don't want to see a bunch of gore and stuff. This is really brutally violent and gory, but it's also super psychedelic at points. The idea being Brian, uh, played by I believe it's Rick Hurst. Yes. Yes. Uh, who kind of disappeared. <laughs> he, uh, he became a TV actor, mostly in uh, – he's still working, uh, mostly TV and soap operas. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which isn't surprising because no. he's not the world's best actor, but he is a really good-looking guy. So Exactly. Go. Anyway, he's like a 20-something. He's living in a, a cheap apartment with a roommate and his, his brother. His brother and his neighbors see uh, – you see something. They've missed something. It's an old couple. Something's missing. They call Elmer that's disappeared from their bathtub. And you're like, well, what is that? Well, Elmer shows up in – Brian's apartment attaches itself to the back of his neck, starts feeding him psychedelic drugs directly into the brain. Elmer is about a foot long parasite, yeah. like a worm. Uh, he's a he's a moving penis. He's basically a penis turd slash brainstem monster, the, and he's definitely the design is definitely supposed to evoke all of those things. And he speaks with a charming voice. Yes. He's a very affable and likable voice. And his whole deal is is that he gets people super addicted to this drug, which is wildly addictive, and then has them walk around with them where he'll jump off them. They'll be tripping so hard they don't even know what's 
going on, and it'll eat the brains of whoever they come across. Yes. From as you get so addicted to this stuff, there comes a point you just don't care anymore, even once you've found out that's what's going on. Uh, meanwhile, this older couple is trying to do anything they can to try and get Elmer back. They had kind of put him in a situation where they knew what was going on and they thought their solution was, well, we'll bring you animal brains that you can eat, but uh, we're not going to let you kill anybody. But, you know, just to keep you fed, you have to keep giving us the drug. Elmer's escaped and wants to, he definitely prefers the real (laughs) real human brain. And this movie is just so crazy. Like the hallucination scenes for the low budget this film had are very cleverly done. Yes. And uh, honestly, the ending shot of this is one of my favorite shots in horror, period. Oh yeah, and the fact that so much of that was done practically is is incredible. Yeah. Even some of these optical effects, uh, all done on a very low budget. As we said, John Henenlotter, uh or Frank Henenlotter, uh kind of has a weird filmography. He's not particularly prolific, but he is an unashamed exploitation filmmaker. And yet, somehow, these bizarre concepts he manages to pull off with a lot more style and fun than a lot of filmmakers working with ten times the budget never get to do. Very true. And this being Arrow release, they have Oh, they've out, it up. They have outdone themselves. Even by Arrow standards, yeah, this, this is, is really packed. With a, almost an hour-long documentary on the making of brain damage, ten minutes uh, with the special effects artists on how they did that, uh, about seven minutes on how they animated Elmer himself. Uh, a look at the the production still photographer, script supervisor, and assistant editor Karen Ogle. Uh, the look at the where they go back and they visit all the locations that they shot it at. Uh, and one of my favorite pieces, Tasty Memories, a brain damage obsession <laughs> with this guy named Adam Skinner, who was right off the bat obsessed with this movie. Yeah. And collected every tiny bit of ephemera that was ever released around it, of which he had to really search to find uh, brain yeah. damage shit to go with it. Uh, there's a 20-minute Q&A with Frank Henelotter on it. There's image galleries with behind the scenes and stills, various ephemera, uh, the original trailer. There's an animated short. Uh, there's an audio commentary with Henlotter, and then you can listen to the isolated score. That's a really, really badass package. Yeah, and, and by the way, it, you know, all of these features are actually worth watching. I, I actually kind of got lost in them for a while. But the bygone behemoth, which is this little five-minute short, is certainly worth watching. It is very sweet. It is a stop-motion animation about uh, this old sort of monster, kind of think of like a a beast from 20,000 Fathoms, that old Willis Mm -hmm. O'Brien, Harryhausen. But now he's old and he's out of work and Hollywood's not calling him. And it has a little, the reason it is on this disc, and at first I thought, why is this on there? It's cute, but why is it here? Because it features the last credit of uh, John, the cool ghoul Zachary, uh, who was a, a horror movie host, who was the uncredited voice for Elmer. And, you know, he's kind of gets this nice little cameo in it, and it's just a nice little send-off uh, to the actor who Henenlotter would use again, but he does explain why he was not credited as the voice in Brain Damaged. Well, let's move it's, on to, it's good. to a third one here. Yeah. Another horror movie I, I thoroughly recommend. And once again, on another week, this might have been my pick of the week. because no, I did not see this. So good. You did not get to see this. This movie is called The Black Coat's Daughter. Uh, it was originally titled February, if you happen to have maybe come across it at one of the film multiple film festivals it played at. It's directed by Oz Perkins, who is Anthony Perkins' son, ah. interestingly enough, um, who first started off as an actor appearing as the 12-year-old version of Norman Bates in Psycho 2. <laughs> 
but is was in six degrees of separation, legally blonde, a bunch of other stuff. But since has moved on to being a writer and director. He, for instance, wrote Cold Comes the Night, which we actually reviewed on the show with Alcee, Brian Cranston, and Logan Marshall Green. This movie is definitely him uh, doing something more similar to if you saw his Netflix film, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Another horror film I definitely recommend uh, with Ruth Wilson in the lead. But this is his shot across the bow of going like, okay, I am going to be an important new horror director. Now, it is ambient, which is not everybody's type of thing. It's very slow moving. It's very – it has that feeling like the first episode of the new Twin Peaks. There's constantly this low industrial rumble going on Mm. and everything's moving slow, but there's a constant feeling of dread. And it really builds up very well, partially due to Kiernan Shipka, who played uh, – what's on Mad Men? uh, John Hamm's daughter on Mm. Mad Men, Mm -hmm. who since his moving into her own as an accomplished actress. She's uh, going to, she's at a Catholic boarding school. It's uh, Christmas break. She's looking forward to her parents to come pick her up. The, the Another student, Rose, is there who is telling them, played by Lucy Boynton, is telling her, well, I'm lying about it because I want to go off with my boyfriend somewhere, but um, my parents are going to be late because of that. I'm telling them that, oh, it was a mistake. So, this is, you know, you're like, okay, these two girls, they don't really know each other or even seem to really like each other, but they're both stuck at the school with no one, practically no one else there. And then it flashes to Emma Roberts playing a character named Joan, who is being, who is hitchhiking and gets picked up by James Remar and his wife, Lauren Holly. And you're like, well, what do these stories have to do with each other? Well, eventually you get to find out what these stories have to do with each other. But what ends up being a very dark sort of maybe demonic possession film mm. Like one of those, well, what really happened? You have to decide. And that's kind of the gist of why this film has as much of an impact as it does, as it, when it finally comes down to that question, it has, it, it makes points and, and that combine over to both stories going on that really hit home. Very well done film. We will talk much more about this uh, at length when it we do the next Deliberations of Doom episode, mm. which will be just sort of a collection review of some of the more recent horror films that have been released on VOD and Blu-ray uh, that are, people are talking about and or are worth seeing. Not every film people are talking about is worth seeing, as you'll find. <laughs> but this is one of the ones we all agreed was really great. So uh, definitely, and it is out on Blu-ray and DVD now, well worth checking out. Oh, so let's go back in time a bit. Oh, speak- Speaking of not worth seeing. <laughs> to The Hearse, which is, uh, you know, a great name for a horror movie. How is this the only horror movie with the name The Hearse? You'd think somebody else would have got there first, but unfortunately, we got, got there this first one. with The Hearse. Directed first by with George Hearst. Bowers, who directed Private Resort with Johnny Depp and Rob <laughs> Morrow, which I saw in the theater, and My Tutor with Crispin Glover, yeah, which I saw in the theater. <laughs> you know, Bowers had a, I, I did a little reading of it. He, he actually did a bunch of stuff in the 80s. And the hearse is actually his debut feature. Uh, he also directed the Stepfather, which has certainly got a good reputation as a horror film. But oh, no, he just edited that. Oh, the, that yeah. was him as the editor. I was going to say he's primarily known as an editor first before he got into directing. Yeah, and who worked is, on a lot of horror films, but a lot did. of silly comedies and which stuff. Which is too. why it's so disappointing to me that this film seems so. It, it has no urgency whatsoever. Uh, Let's get a little bit into the plot. Uh, Jane Hardy, the character uh, played by Trish Vandeveer, who was at the time uh, George C. Scott's wife, 
uh, and had previously been in another horror movie. With uh, her, The Changeling. With, with him, the, changeling, the Changeling, which yeah. is another sort of slightly cultish uh, horror film. Uh, in here, she is uh, a woman, a teacher who has just recently been divorced. Uh, she's unhappy. She takes a long sabbatical and goes to live in this piece of property, uh, the home that has been in the family for 30 years, inexplicably old, left alone. Creepy old giant house left to her by her late aunt. Which is actually not a terribly creepy house. It's actually kind of a nice little house. Well, any uh, house is creepy when you start playing creepy music. Well, yes. <laughs> of course, before long, you know, uh, things start slamming and bumping and lights go off. And people, uh, everybody in the town is like, we don't want you here. Yes. She is, You're of course, the spitting image of her deceased aunt, uh, whom she's apparently never met this house has just been sitting unoccupied for 30 years uh overseen by joseph cotton who is surprisingly you know cranky about this whole situation he's the first red herring in this movie uh before long after everyone honestly every man in this movie is terrible every man in this movie is either undressing this woman with her eyes or trying to scare her into leaving town or giving her the cold shoulder and finally, the one guy who shows up, who's kind of nice to her, played by David Gautreaux, uh, he shows up and is sort of starts a romance. But he is so kind of weird that you just automatically know where this is going to go. To some degree. I mean, I didn't 100% know. I had a basic idea of where it was going, but it was some amount of... There's a lot of red herring characters in this thing. Absolutely. That are floating around the edges of it, um, who they're like, oh, are they involved? Or what's ha- Meanwhile, she keeps seeing this hearse yeah. driven by this strange-looking man yeah, who just is following like, her. trying to knock her off the road, or it's just pulling up into her drive, um, of which is, like, the connection to that to the the final what's actually happening plot it's kind of like really it, it's very yeah i feel like they came up with the title and then sort yeah. of cooked the movie hey, around we got a hearse let's make a movie let's do that the problem with this movie is that it it, it goes on way too long that dissipates any suspense in it it feels like it could have been a strong atmospheric you know maybe one hour episode of an anthology series but stretched out to uh, you know, over an hour and a half. It, it's just pretty lifeless. It, it, you know, Vinegar Syndrome has done a pretty good job of putting it together and cleaning it up, as they always do. But uh, once again, they've scraped the bottom of the barrel and come up with something that they probably should have just left where they found it. The <laughs> only feature on this of any note, really, uh, is uh, a 20-minute interview with uh, actor David Gautreaux. Uh, who's probably best known for his involvement with Star Trek The Motion Picture. This was very early in his career. Uh, and he, you know, he's smart enough to know uh, what kind of movie this is. But, you know, unashamedly just took it on a, as an early role and thought, you know, I'm going to do the best job I can. And he has some entertaining stories about the production. That's worth checking out. But other than that, uh, really, it's a, it's this a is footnote a, of a footnote from yeah. this from uh, horror films that were coming out in the eighties. This one, right at nineteen eighty, certainly the biggest problem was it's borrowing so heavily from other better horror films that came out in the seventies. It's part of that but haunted it's house, just satanic flat panic out era. Not, yeah, not horror uh, borrowed. Uh, but interesting, Christopher, Christopher McDonald has a very brief cam- appearance in this in one of his first roles. Uh, you might he's been in a ton of movies, I, but I, I always remember him as Shooter McGavin. 
Ben from Happy Gilmore. Yeah, who the hell does he play in this movie again? He's he's just one of the obnoxious kids who's fr- friends oh, okay. with who's friends yeah. with the kid who they have coming yeah, over to work okay. on the house. Gotcha. Like, he has barely anything to do in this, but it was like, hey, that's Christopher McDonald. He looks like he's fifteen years old. Well, Probably what was. do you know? Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our next film, which is not a horror movie, but certainly has horror elements to it, and that is the live action adaptation. <laughs> Of the manga Wolf Guy, once again from Arrow. Um, it's a Japanese film. Apparently, the manga, uh, like a uh, Wolf Guy, en- enraged lycanthrope. All right, yes. so lycanthrope, you think of that in a movie called Wolf Guy, you think, oh, well, he's a werewolf. Well, no. Here, uh, okay, Sonny Chiba, which goes a long way towards forgiving anything else sure. that might be wrong with the film, but he plays a guy who's like not a cop, but he does cop stuff. And he's actually listed as a reporter, a but reporter. you would never know that. But yeah, you would have just assumed he's a cop, despite a few circumstances where cops goes, hey, you're a reporter, you can't be here. But his whole deal is he doesn't turn into a wolf or get any more hairy with the face of the moon, but he does become practically immortal when it's in, in and more badass when it's in full phase. By, by some weird coincidence, Sonny Chiba is witnesses a guy who is being chased he claims by some kind of tiger that he's cursed and actually one of the things that this film does have going for it is some some really inventive lo-fi gore yeah. there's a seed of an invisible tiger attacking this guy that actually it's staged really, quite well yeah agreed and so of course being a reporter his first thought is what the hell just happened? Yeah. And so he starts digging into the story that leads to this guy and a bunch of other people who have mysteriously died under similar circumstances, all of which leads to a young woman with a dark past. As well as like a criminal organization that for, that is in the most tertiary way possible. That is tied into, into like a high-ranking official. Uh, and <laughs> it turns out that Sonny Chiba seems to have just conveniently forgotten this entire tragic backstory of his own childhood that ties him into this whole werewolf culture. Uh, And I cannot for the life of me remember the name of the director. Uh, But as he points out in uh, both he and the producer uh, show up uh, for interviews, which are really the only special features on this particular disc. And it's kind of refreshing because they're very blatant about the fact that Oh, you want to talk about that film? Oh, uh, by the way, it's Kazuhiko Yamaguchi who did Sister Street Fighter and Delinquent Girl Boss, both worth watching as well. But if you like this kind of film. Absolutely. It's 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 a pink film from Japanese. It it borders on pink film more than once. Lots of nudity, lots of sex, very bloody, violent at points. But ultimately what you're getting is just, it's a Sonny Chiba film. He's kicking people's ass, sometimes getting his ass kicked. Uh, It's very psychedelic. There's lots of like trippy sequences in it. And it all adds up to a halfway decent little cult movie yeah. uh, from the 70s. If you like that sort of thing, the Japanese like crazy movies, the Japanese yeah. freakout movies, well, then this is one I'd say is not to be missed. Yeah, they, they, they put this together really fast because it was based on this manga, which at the time was very popular. According to Amaguchi and the other producer, uh, after they screened the film, the, uh, the creator of the manga was furious with them. Uh, and Yamaguchi admits, he's like, I don't know anything about werewolf movies. I'm not, I don't particularly like them we couldn't afford a werewolf anyway so how do we construct a movie based on this series and just avoid that whole thing uh there's some bizarre 
uh, images and hear uh, surgical procedures and stock footage mm-hmm. that go into the mix. There's some queasy stuff. But it is, like you said, it's halfway fun. It has never been released in America. Uh, I think this Until is the first time. Until now. <laughs> so if you are a Sonny Chiba fan or just a, a completist, it is definitely worth watching out. But please do not think you're getting some kick-ass lost Japanese um, werewolf movie, which is what I was hoping for but did not get. No, this is like one of those. It's a hidden it, It's a hidden film, cult film. It's not one of the, oh, my God, don't miss this by any means. No. But if you like the, the 70s crazy Japanese stuff, this is one that – I would say is definitely to put on your list. And even if that's something you have no experience with, this isn't a bad starting point for no, those No, it's films. not. Uh, I, I enjoyed this. Definitely one yeah. worth keeping. All right, so another one you did not get to see that I did get to watch was a Italian film called The Climber or, or La Ambrosioso from 1975, directed by uh, Pasquale Squitaleri. I have no idea if is I'm that Joe D'Alessandro right. of uh, Andy Warhol fame? Yes, I believe it is. Oh, playing okay. the character of Aldo. Um, now, this film got kind of well known after the fact because it came out before. Uh, Scarface, Al Pacino Ah. and Scarface, uh, Brian De Palma's. And Brian De Palma said this was one of his biggest influences when he was making this movie. And when you watch this little crime thriller, you can totally Uh. see why. Aldo plays a guy in Naples who is like a low-level, like, drug-dealing guy for a bigger group. And he gets in trouble for skimming, and they kick his ass, and he manages to get away and go to Rome, where he... Like, meets a girl that he falls for who is very hot, uh, St- Stefania Cassini, who I believe it may, uh, was in at least one Argento film, not 100% sure, and um, forms his own gang. Start Most of the movie, the bulk of this movie is him gathering his own group of people, of toughs that he's going to bring together mm-hmm. that all have their own distinctive peculiarities and, uh, you know, what, what <laughs> makes them stand out from one another. Eventually, with the idea of going back to Naples and seizing control from the actual Italian mob that's there and becoming this brutal mob lord there. This is a pretty young guy. First off, like, okay, maybe if you were going to go to, like, I don't know, like Prague or something and try and take over from the mob there. That'd be a better starting point than the fucking birthplace of the mob. What are you well, doing? He didn't go to Sicily. He went to Rome. Yeah, but you know. but still, yeah. anywhere in Italy, I would say, is probably just bad call, brother. <laughs> Not a great starting point. I mean, this is fun for what it's worth. Once again, there's lots of sex. There's lots of violence. Um, the, you know, the performances are all pretty corny and over the top. I ended up actually for the – I almost never do this, but was about halfway through switched over to the dubbed version because for whatever reason, I found the subtitles for the uh, Italian version were hard to make out what the hell they were talking about huh. a lot of the time. And when I switched over to the dubbed version, uh, it made a lot more sense. Uh, and, and in fact, there would be whole lines that they just missed. Like there would be sequences <laughs> where the character was talking – and there's no subtitle, and you're like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> so I, I don't know. I'm just saying maybe it would be, but this is one of those few exceptions. But yeah, this is a little curi- Italian curiosity uh, from 1975 that is, you know, an Arrow release. So they've done their best with fixing it up and making it look nice. It's more interesting if you're just a big fan of Scarface, which I am not. Always had a problem with that. You know, it's an anti-hero film, but the anti-hero is never heroic in any way, shape, or form. He's just a total psychopathic piece of shit. 
like Scarface was, like this character is. He's a psychopathic piece of shit. But the only thing to like about him at all is he's a really good-looking guy. That was D'Alessandro's claim to fame. Um, but yeah, there's only one bonus feature here, which is the interview with uh, D'Alessandro done in 2017, exclusively for this release, called Little Joe's Adventures in Europe, that he talks both about this film and about his time with Warhol. So yeah. maybe you're a fan of his as well as an actor. Yeah. This would be a curiosity for you. But I, on the hand, you know, I was like, okay, this is better than a lot. I'm not the world's biggest Italian crime thriller guy, except for the more giallo, darker horror mm-hmm. stuff. But um, yeah, this is better than most of them I've seen. All right. Another one you did not get to see was I Am Heath Ledger. I mean, there's not but so much to say about this. It is a one of the new breed of documentaries where they're taking just tons and tons and tons of footage and telling a puff piece documentary story about the person. Heath Ledger, of course, who died several years back uh, by accident overdosing on prescription drugs. He was very well loved, to mm-hmm. be sure. And this film gets deeply into the reasons why so many people cared for him so deeply. One of the reasons being that he, when he, when he first hit it in LA, he bought a big house and then opened his doors to any actor from Australia. It's like, you want to come stay here and, and, and uh, go audition for roles. You can stay here for free. I'm not even going to charge you. And, and that included people like Naomi Watts mm-hmm. and Joel Edgerton and people like that who got to be friends with him through taking him up on that and coming over and staying in his place. So one of the reasons why there's a a fund in Australia under his name, a a charity that regularly helps out young Australian actors and brings them over to California to start, uh, try and help them get parts. Several of, you know, newer actors from Australia got their start through that charity, but it's because it's one of those few things like, actually that makes perfect sense because you could have seen Heath Ledger doing exactly that. Uh, this is the, he used to film everything. Honestly, if he was still alive, he would almost certainly be a director and not an actor these days. Cause he was very freaked out by the success that, that followed uh, 10 things I hate about you. Like mm. he was not ready to be a teen heartthrob and didn't quite know how to deal with it. Despite how, invigoratingly extroverted he was and how talented he was at so many different things. And he kind of like started picking roles. He could just disappear into completely. Uh, some of which made for films that weren't that great to watch, yeah, but yeah. you know, you now knowing that about him, you can totally see why the dark Knight playing the Joker was something he was like, yes, this is exactly the sort of thing I was looking for and, and gave it his all. Uh, there's some, a lot of interesting stories here, especially some stuff about behind the scenes of the dark Knight. people saying like whenever he was in to do a scene, once people clued in how good he was, Everything would stop. Everybody would stop what they were doing and just watch because he was just so magnetic watching him do this. No one knew what to expect. Um, A lot of interesting interviews from a lot of people I didn't even know he was friends with. Um, And and I did enjoy it, but there's no question it's a puff piece. There is nary an even tiny bit of shade to be thrown at him in here. And I know that he had his problems as well, uh, but... This is not the movie if you want to know about that darker side. This is the tribute piece to Heath Ledger, and it's a nice one. Okay. All right. Let's move on to another nice film. A very with nice a dark film. edge. A street cat named Bob. Okay. I know what you're saying. It's a film called A Street Cat Named Bob. This doesn't sound like a movie that Chris would have picked to watch, or per- even despite it having a cat in it. It sounds like a Hallmark movie. Yeah. Well, you know, it as the English say, it does what it says on the tin. It is, in fact, a movie about a street cat named Bob. But more properly, it is the true life story of a gentleman by the name of John uh, Bowman. Or I James Bowen. James yeah. Bowen, uh, who is 
And, and this is where we kind of get into the, some of the darker stuff that I researched, and it's kind of glossed over in this movie. Uh, a little bit. A little bit. But for whatever reason, uh, Bowen, uh, I keep saying his name incorrectly, he uh, leaves Australia to go visit his uh, father after uh, his parents had been divorced. He'd been raised in Australia for many years, comes back to London, meets his dad. Things don't go quite as he planned. And eventually he finds himself living on the streets with a drug habit. Uh, he's busking on the streets for money, which is playing music, playing music, and seems like a nice enough sort of guy, except for the fact that he's hooked on smack. But he does genuinely seem committed to quitting, which uh, which brings about the sympathy of a social worker who says, fine, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to get you housing, but you got to stay clean. You can't be busking. You can't be pulled over. You can't be arrested. And so on. And he struggles with that. Well, which one day... It's not easy for a Which is not easy. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you know, how does he make a living? Well, one day, uh, through a window, a cat, who he will name Bob, uh, walks into the house and befriends him. Bob, of course, is injured. And James, being the good guy that he is, even though he's struggling to pay bills and struggling for food, he spends his last dime taking this cat to the vet to get uh, cleaned up and treated. Somehow this cat is aware, uh, yeah. presumably, that this was a big sacrifice for him. Because yeah. after this, this cat ain't going nowhere. They are inseparable. Inseparable. In fact, this cat, you can walk around with this cat on your shoulders like a parrot. Yeah. Like, a, in fact, they got the actual real cat, Bob, to play the cat in this movie. This Indeed. is the real cat, which might be because they could not find another cat that would do that for long yeah, very periods possible. of time. It's so calm and happy. It, he built a little, because it was following him everywhere anyway, he ended up getting a leash for it yeah. and then have it when he was playing. It would just sit right in front mm -hmm. of him. People would hear the story and would just love it. And he just started making yeah. money. And he and the cat really, the cat became, they became viral. Became, they went viral. They became viral on Line, and the cat became deeply emotionally important to him. The cat yeah. himself was a symbol for, like, I can be more than this. Yeah. I can be stronger. And it led to a series of... And we're kind of spoiling the movie a little bit, but suffice it to say, it led to a series of book deals, which led to a movie. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole string of books based on Bob for... There's his biography, but there's uh, of James's biography, but there's also children's books yeah. and other things. So he's kind of started this whole cottage industry about him and Bob. Uh, in fact, at times, Bob is more interesting than the character of James is sometimes. However, uh, Luke Treadaway, uh, who plays uh, James, is actually a really good actor in this. I don't, I'm not familiar with him, but he was sympathetic. He had this sort of wiry build that looked like a guy who was a junkie and he really commits to what could have been a very cliched corny performance but he makes you feel for the guy he totally sells his connection with this of all thing a cat uh and yeah it, it is charming it is sweet is it terribly deep? No, you're going to see every beat of this movie coming a mile away. But it's not cloying. But it's and not cloying. very important for a film that is sweet, is kind of heartwarming. It's not cloying at all. You no. really do feel for this character. Uh, there's a point where Bob disappears for a little while and you're just as stressed out as he is yeah. watching the sequence. Anthony Head has a nice little turn playing his dad, who's got a new wife and, who, and two daughters with him who, who wants, like... James to stay as far away as possible from their whole family, and he's kind of stuck in between. Um, Ruta, uh, uh, Ruta Gedmintas plays uh, a 
a vegetarian neighbor. She's been in a lot of stuff like the, she's a, the the British chick on the strain. If you've watched yeah. that, she's on the Borgias, the Tudors, uh, uh, Spooks Code Nine. She's, she's the little, love interest of the story. Yeah, more or less. Uh, although that's definitely not the focus. Here. No, but it, we find out that she had a brother who had uh, yeah. had been involved, and so of course she has she cares for James, but is also worried that you know he's just going to hurt himself and consequently hurt her as well. The thing that kept going through my mind, and by the way, I'm playing with one of your cats right now, who's being very affectionate. While you must know we're talking about cats, but we're not talking about you, <laughs> uh, it makes me wonder, it's a horrible thought, but I'm a horrible person, what happens when Bob eventually passes oh, away? What does this guy do? Because, I mean... What does this guy do after that? Obviously, this was several years ago when he first sure. found this cat, and who knows how old the cat was when he found it. It was not a kitten. Yeah. Um... And, and now here, several years later, on this, thing. this cat's still going in the movie. You're like, okay, this cat's got to be getting up there in age. Does the cat point. get royalties? Uh, well, you know. probably get some tasty treats. You know, but, but I think this is, I mean, I will say this is definitely a movie more for cat lovers than it is for anything yes. else. It's a solid film built around how awesome it is to have a cool relationship with a cat. Yeah. I, I always wonder about, like, the people who made a whole bunch of money off Grumpy Cat. It's <laughs> like, what happens when Grumpy Cat passes away? Or Little Bub. Or Little Bub. It's yeah. like, you know, what happens when the gravy train comes to an end? <laughs> so I do hope that, you know, James can find some way to support himself along after this uh, cat has left his life. But it's a charming story and, you know, worth watching out if you're in the mood for something that'll make you like humanity. But yeah. if you want something that's going to make you hate everything and yet you still want to see a movie about a crazy junkie, that leads us to our next movie, which would be Starlight. Boy, what a Ugh. odd little movie this is. Starring Iggy Pop, everybody's favorite uh, junkie. Uh, not anymore. Not, not for a long time. Not for time. a long time. I, in fact, I'm on the record as loving Iggy Pop. I mean, this has but, got a lot of great French actors absolutely. in it. Most notably Beatrice Dahl, who uh, was best known in uh, Betty Blue. If you've never seen that movie, wow. Or to Checky Cario, who was in the original La Femme Nikita and lots of other other great French films. Uh, Dennis Levant yeah. as well, who was uh, in Holy Motors. Yeah. The, the lead, this is directed and written by uh, actress uh, Sophie Blondie, and I assume that is how she managed to put together such a great ensemble. She is, uh, this is her debut as a director. Uh, this film was made, I believe, in 2012 or 2013 and has been languishing on the shelves for all this time, waiting for someone to pick it up for distribution. Having watched Starlight, I now know why it took so damn long for someone to put this out. Because this is not a very good movie. I don't know if I agree with you on I that just, one. it was so tedious. I, I actually had fun with this in a very, that sort of psychedelic, almost inter... It, it, like kind of um, influenced by Jodorowsky a little bit. Um, Jodorowsky. Sure. I wish it had had more Jodorowsky. Um, it it feels like bad Fellini crossed Iggy Pop with something. Is not else. in the the main character no. here. In fact, it's really around a traveling circus and the problems going on within that circus. Who doesn't like each other? Problems with the ringmaster who they think are is keeping money from uh, them. Everybody seems convinced he's holding back uh, like cash from them yeah. and lying about it. Um, like There's multiple people who are like in love triangles. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
all that is okay. I'm more visually interested in what was happening here and trying to understand, which I still can't completely parse the relationship between Iggy Pop, who is indeed some kind of angel, and Dennis L- L- Levant. Or He's Denis supposed Levant. to be some kind um, of conscience slash guardian angel, but mostly this just involves Iggy wandering around the beaches shirtless and occasionally showing up in a lap dissolve and doing like some kind of little physical movement based acting stuff with uh, Dennis Levant uh, whenever he's kind of having a crisis of conscience. There's a kind of mystery story at some point in here. Uh, You know, this just felt very slow. It felt very forced. It seemed like a directorial debut by somebody who thought, Hey, I know all of these great actors and I want to make a great little uh, art house film. It's so Art housey. Well, it screams art house film. You're no, no, yeah, no. and it screams debut as well. Yeah. But I do. I mean, she's wearing her influences on her sh- uh, sh- uh, sleeve. Like yeah. I said, Jodorowsky, Lynch for sure. That are here. I almost felt like she didn't go deeply enough into those influences to make a film that would have been better if she'd been brave enough to do it. Because honestly, the characters alone aren't interesting enough to carry no. this whole film. But the performances are really, really good. I, yes, especially uh, I enjoyed Beatrice Dahl who has kind of let herself go in just her whole life. I mean, she's apparently a full-blown crazy person in real life. Well, she, she seems she like that in this movie. revealed at one point during her druggiest part, she ate a human ear off a corpse uh, on a dare. She's an odd duck. And if she playing, had done that in this movie, it would have been much more interesting. She's playing a very odd duck here as well as the, the gypsy woman. But yeah, there's lots of implied mysticism here. Uh it just doesn't Which it get, never commits to either. Never commits I never to know if there's magic in this world or not. It doesn't go as deep into it as it should to sustain the characters, but I did find this uh, for for me an enjoyable ride down the like this weird circus troupe's life and through this director's visual sense that I think will go on to do better stuff than this after. Uh, let's hope I mean so. it's worth it just getting through to see Iggy Pop wearing riding a motorcycle made entirely of wicker. Yeah, I, I mean I have a greater I have a pretty good tolerance for artsy fartsy stuff. But this, like you said, it you know, it's like, low oh, look, it's a little bit of Picasso's salt in box. It's a little bit of Children of Paradise. It's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of La Strada. Mm-hmm. It's like this is a bunch of little bits of stuff that don't add up to anything. And all I could think of is I wish instead of Iggy Pop, they had this had been Jim Jarmusch directing with Tom Waits playing that role. Or better yet, Tom Waits could have taken the, that story, those characters, and written a three-minute song, and it would have been great. <laughs> instead, we had to sit through an hour and a half of meandering. But... Let's not go any further into yeah. it. Let's move on. Let's finish our show with, I think, the first runner-up this week for uh, Pick of the Week. I Absolutely. Mean, it was pretty damn close, and we are talking about Wolverine's third movie. Uh, lo- well, not kind of the X-Men <coughs> film. I'm third sorry. Were there film. others? <laughs> the second one is pretty good. Oh, also yeah. by the same uh, uh, James director, James Mangold. This is Logan. An interesting idea to... Continue the series on by setting it like 30 some years later and with an old Wolverine whose powers aren't really working that well anymore, that there's been a a some kind of uh, 
intentionally created drop-off in the amount of new mutants. Yeah. Basically, the bad guys in the government yeah. won. And it's a sort of post-Trumpian world where there's a, a wall and people have to constantly... Wolverine is constantly moving back and forth between the borders. And then there's, of course, an escape across the Canadian border. So it's very much about those borders. I, you know, honestly, I give a lot of credit to Brian Singer for the first two X-Men for kind of helping kickstart off this uh, trend in superhero movies and, sure. of course, uh, Hugh Jackman's career because nobody knew who he was prior well, to that. When he made those X-Men films, they were some of the first superhero movies that were not just tongue-in-cheek. Like, yeah, when you look they at Tim took Burton's movies where they were like, isn't this dumb? Let's have fun. Absolutely. And you're like, There's a market for that sort of thing, but nobody had really t- done well yeah. the straight superhero movie uh, uh, up until that point. And yeah, Logan say is, the old Superman. Is, but, like, yeah. Kind of Wolverine's Dark Knight film, but yeah, that's but not much exactly better right. than that. No, it's not. It's yes, not better it than the Dark Knight. Are you crazy? Not. I'm, no, I'm not. That's the, such a. That's so portentous. Uh, <laughs> the Dark Knight is. I still think arguably the best superhero movie ever made. It, it, it was the. It was the best superhero movie made at the time, and it was the one that should have signaled this is over. We've taken it as far as it can go. Well, it's least, not even fun anymore. At least to DC. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, once again, not Marvel Studios. This is, is Fox yeah. doing their own thing in their own department and making a film that feels so different than any of the other X-Men films. It's a yeah. deeply personal, like almost character piece study uh, of Wolverine, his relationship with Charles Xavier, who at this point is practically pretty much senile. Yeah. He's so old and has like... Like when he doesn't take his medicine, he has psychic freakouts that yeah. paralyzes anyone around him. What happens when you are the world's most powerful telepath and you are not in control of your mind? And it's then, actually the most frightening the concept of Charles Xavier has ever been in film. Yeah, and then them finding this little girl uh, that they call Laura, who other people call X twenty three, who is a female clone. That oh, was, don't give ha- that away. Well, I mean, they reveal it pretty early. It is film, pretty early that that, that she has, she has a lot of his she's, same traits. She's a baby Wolverine. In fact, quite literally, um, she has got the spikes and she has got the invulnerability, but they need to protect her because there is a whole group of people led by Richard E. Grant, a Zand- character Xander Rice in the comics, uh, who uh, th- this group of people called the Reavers, the lead one we see is Boyd Holbrook from Narcos, who are chasing them anywhere they can go. And she's determined that there is this place called Eden on the other side of the Canadian border. And one way or the other, she's got to talk up. Uh, 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 I keep wanting to say Picard, Jesus, uh, <laughs> Xavier and Wolverine into taking her there. And there seems to be some doubt how much it exists. But the one thing we know is there were other kids and maybe they're there too. Yeah. And it's this well, movies about Wolverine trying to find again, that humanity inside himself, trying to find a sense of hope and purpose when he has lost all hope and sense of purpose. And, you know, I had, as I had stated earlier, I, I give credit to those first two X-Men films, but that series just became, you know, increasingly less interesting until the point where I had a friend who talked me into going to see Apocalypse. And I walked out of that movie so oh, that irritated and annoyed. And I was like, why the hell did I? should have seen so, one before it. Yeah, really and, you know, good. so when, when they – and I, the first Wolverine movie did not – do it for me. I didn't even bother to see the second one. So when somebody announced that, oh, we're going to do Logan, this new Wolverine movie, I was not initially interested at all. But this movie completely won me over because it did something very smart that I don't think Fox has ever been able to do up to now, which is 
kind of just get a handle on their own continuity, mm-hmm. which is, and they did the only smart thing left they could do, which is like our own continuity makes so little sense anymore. We're just, it didn't happen. We're just not going to deal with it. This is all, it, it, this may as well, well be happening in a parallel you universe. Clearly, didn't see Days of Future Past. I, I might have, but I forgot it because that that's actually one of the best of the X Men movies, and that's the one where they went. By the way, all that shit everybody hates never happened. Yeah, but even then, <laughs> the, this film is really smart, though, in that unlike and because I my my comic book movie fatigue, you know, sort of hits various points. Some days I'm okay. Some days I'm like, oh god, not another damn one, because they feel too much like homework. This actually does the. I think if you've never seen an X Men f- movie. You'll totally get along with this film. Yeah, you won't I'm, be lost. And they do a very smart thing of like referring to things that happened in the past. And any minute now, there's a constant cryptic references to some event, an incident in Westchester. And I keep waiting for like, you know, a flashback. But they don't. They treat the audience not, with respect. It's and not go, necessary. You will figure it out. Or, and once or, we see, once you see what Charles is doing. You don't need us to spell this out to you. There's stuff that's referenced that is never explained, but you don't necessarily need an explanation no. for that either. It just is to, to it drops fill, you into this world. It fills out the picture better. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. You could watch this without having seen a single X-Men film with having only the tiniest of familiarity with these characters. And I think really enjoy it because it's more of a Western yeah. than it is anything else. And there's such good performances in this. And I got to say, especially this little girl, Daphne Keene. Yeah. Wow. Is she a knockout playing this role of the little Wolver- little baby Wolverine X 23. She is so good. I've never watched uh, the show, the refugees, the TV show that apparently is her only previous credit, but yeah. I guarantee you we're going to be seeing a lot more of her well, and stuff. See. I she mean, it's a, it's a largely silent performance, but that's all it needs to uh, be. Until it's largely the least silent performance ever. Well, it's mostly <laughs> screaming and yelling. Uh, but there is a... Re- and murder. Lots of murder. Lots this of is, murder. This is the thing that, you know, we'd always wanted to see Wolverine do... And the fact that they go and do an R rating, that in itself strikes me as brave. Because honestly, Fox... I don't know if their license with Marvel is coming to an end or what... But they'd kind of reached the end of the line creatively, and nothing symbolizes that better than Apocalypse. Why not? Since you only, you know, every one of their movies, they try to shoehorn in either uh, Hugh Jackman or they try to shoehorn... Uh, I also was about to call him Picard. Shit. Uh, <laughs> Xavier. <laughs> Xavier. Uh, and, you know... It's like there's more to it than that. These guys have been playing these roles for almost 20 years now. Yeah. Well, I and- think what happened is Deadpool came out, which Fox never wanted to make yeah. at all. They fought against it getting made at all, tooth and nail, was a massive fucking hit for them. Yeah. Like huge. One of the biggest hits of the year. And it was a rated one of the first of the rated R. Like I think it was the first rated R primary like Marvel yeah. or DC character comic book movie. And everybody went like you could hear the brakes hitting and go. Okay, reconsider yeah. what we're doing now, and maybe people want stories that are not but, this traditional blend of stories. But Logan you could that do film. that with Deadpool, who was written to be this obscene, foul-mouthed character. But the question was, could very you do weird. it in theaters and sell it? Yeah. And it, it, in and of itself, is kind of an attack on the traditional superhero yeah. movie plot while doing this traditional superhero mm-hmm. movie plot. It's making fun of how predictable that is to do the whole way. Yeah. This is 
feels See, like more like when comics suddenly started doing, you know, we're going to start putting our characters in very specific runs by famous writers and let those stand alone. See, when we're they start releasing it, graphic novels and market them, this feels like for movies the equivalent of when The Dark Knight Returns came out, when you were like the, the book, not the movie. Right. When it was like, wow, we can have this too. Yeah. We can have those brightly well, colored me, things and we can have this. That To me, that felt like the end of something. Like, we have nowhere else to go with this but to just treat it with respect and mm-hmm. just do it for real because it's not fun anymore but we can at least engage with the characters and, and really when i thought oh they're going to do rated r logan i thought all right they're going to give the fanboys all the gore they've always wanted you know there's which is there's going to be f-bombs and all of that happens all that's true but but is it well done <laughs> yeah if, if i thought it was just you know a typical logan or uh, wolverine movie with just you know more blood I wouldn't be impressed. Yeah. This is a good dramatic film that just happens to be set in a world of superhero mutants who are now past their prime. And after, you know, over 17 years of playing these characters, uh, Patrick Stewart and, you know, uh, Hugh Hugh Jackman, I won't spoil it for you, but this is as good a way for them to end their run. This gives them a good, dignified out. Is there room for them to make more movies? Of course. There's somebody yeah. in Hollywood right now trying to figure out how to put them in a new movie. Well, I mean, they've even said this is a, you know, an Elseworlds, as it were, if it was a DC movie. Yeah. This is a possible future. Yeah. This is not, we are not going to stop making movies in the current X-Men yeah. storyline that will have these characters in them, yeah. you know, in one way or the other. The, you know, this is just the, that but sort to, of putting a capper on the series of films that starred the older actors from the original sure. Brian Singer. But if I would hate to see those guys come back because this is the way I want to remember them. I don't I, want them to come back in something else. I know you don't read the comics probably, but what they've done with the character of Old Man Logan that this is largely based off the original graphic novel of uh-huh. from, I want to say, Warren Ellis. It might that have been sounds Malar. right. I can't remember. But what they've done now with his character, with finding a way to bring him into the primary universe is actually pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Where I'm like, okay, if they decided to find a way to grab Wolverine, old Wolverine at a time and put him with the kids somewhere, then like, I would be okay with that. This, this, but Hugh this, Jackman this, says he doesn't want to do it. Uh, you know, this feels to me like, you know, when Clint Eastwood did Unforgiven. Yeah, yeah he, totally. He worked for another 20, 30 years, but you know, you just thought after that movie. Mainly behind the camera. D- behind the camera, but you thought, this is a great, if he stopped now. Yeah. This would be so perfect. Still the best film of his career. Absolutely. All right. So not having talked at all about the bonus features here, I'll say the most important bonus feature being this does come with an extra disc. And it's not like just if you get the special, special edition, like the regular edition of this comes with an extra disc, which is Logan Noir, Uh which is the whole film that has been remastered in black and white. I did, in fact, watch it all the way through this way. And yeah, it pops. I don't know if I would necessarily say that would be my choice to, of the way to watch it. I think both versions are fine the way they are. There's certainly color choices in the color version that, like, I think are incredibly well done. A mm-hmm. sense of despair that comes in with all the yellow and brown. Oh, yeah. And then when you start getting into Canada, everything and it hope goes from starts brown to green. Exactly. I, that I think are really interesting that you're not going to get here. But there's definitely the, the tones of this film 
I mean, work really well in black and white. There's also some deleted scenes, some of which I thought were very interesting. Um, there's a reference in here, which it's even intentionally unclear whether or not it's Picard. Uh, Picard God damn it. <laughs> Xavier misremembering things, but says that Wolverine was married to Jean Grey and then he killed her, which is like, whoa, that's pretty heavy, yeah. heavy news. Um, as, as well as a reference to Sabretooth at one point. So kind of fun. There's an hour and 16 minute making of documentary that, of course, is basically a set of connected featurettes, but you watch as one whole thing that's extremely well done. And then a very well done commentary by James Mangold. This is about as solid a set as you could ask for. Yeah. For one of the best movies we've seen so far this year and one of the best superhero movies just flat out ever made. Yeah. So uh, highly recommended. Well, once again, don't put it quite as high on my list of essentials as Get Out, but that mainly has to do with the fact that I think Get Out is not only one of the great new horror films, but is really going to change the path of yeah. genre like and how it relates to race relations altogether. I mean – 24, 20 years from now, we may look at Logan and say, okay, I see a little snapshot of what America was thinking about back in 2017, but Get Out will definitely, I think, be one for the history books. Agreed. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this digital noise. I want to thank Marco once again for joining me. Next show will indeed be with Joe and maybe a little bit longer of a break, but not by a huge margin till we get to there. So I will let you guys know. Um, as soon as I know, but, uh, but still, we're going to try and keep it tight, tight and fast. The only reason we take a little longer is because Joe's actually on vacation right now. Mm -hmm. So not able to pass stuff off to him as fast as I normally would, but yeah, keep an eye out as well for that upcoming deliberations of doom episode. And please, uh, which is now subscriber free. You can, you can, you can watch that without being a subscriber uh, or listen to it without being a subscriber. Cause I'm very proud of that show. And then of course, uh, become a subscriber and you can get our weekly breakfast pub with all the news uh, and trailer reviews, which is also a show. I, I think makes it all worth it. Oh no, we already finished oh, the giveaway. Yeah, he's saying do the giveaway for Get Out. I, yeah, I wasn't sure already, if it already done because all, you know, already done. After we talk so much about it, you definitely have to go out and get it. Yeah, yeah, it totally should. Anyway, thanks so much, guys. Thank you. <laughs>